This is Molly Hennessy Fisk with the Washington Post. I am um, driving from Orlando south towards Fort Myers. I'm on um, Highway 75 right now and going past a massive convoy of Florida search and rescue, uh, National Guard vehicles, there's like military vehicles, there's uh, trucks towing rescue boats. Um, I'm getting a tropical storm warning as I'm driving. Uh, Hurricane Ian made landfall on Wednesday in southwest Florida. And some people think that this could be the deadliest hurricane in Florida's history. Our colleague Molly has been talking to volunteers who have been trying to rescue people in Fort Myers. They weren't able to reach some of the people who called them asking for rescues uh, in Naples overnight. Um, including some women who were, um, they told me, 101 and 98 years old. There was a guy, a 91-year-old on oxygen who was uh, floating in a flooded house who they were trying to get to. The sheriff of Lee County has said that there could be hundreds of fatalities, but I talked to their um, the sheriff's spokesman this morning, and she said they're still doing search and rescue, so they're still trying to, to pin that down. One of the most dangerous things about this hurricane is the flooding. Authorities in Fort Myers said late Wednesday that parts of the city were under three to four feet of water. To the south, in Naples, half of the streets are not passable, according to warnings from the county. This has never happened here before. Not from this magnitude. Bill D'Antuono lives in Naples. Ian devastated his home. He spoke to our colleague Brittany Shamus about how this hurricane was so different from anything he'd seen before. You know, I've seen trees down in the middle of the road, like trees falling on houses, but nothing even comes close to this amount of destruction that just happened. You know, the story of a storm like this is not over once it makes landfall. In some ways, it's just beginning. Brady Dennis is a climate reporter for The Post. I think the governor of Florida said this morning that Ian has brought, quote-unquote, historic damage to the state. And what exactly that means, I think, will become clear in the days ahead. But there's no doubt that it's, it's going to leave a huge mark. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, September 29th. Today, what we know about Hurricane Ian's path of destruction and the hard questions that Floridians will have to face in the short term and the long term. So one of the things that struck me as I watched the storm, you know, creep up the Gulf of Mexico toward Florida and, and across Cuba, of course, was how rapidly it intensified, especially in the last day or two before it made landfall. It was a Category 1 storm, and then just like that, it was a Category 4 storm. Yeah. And we're seeing that, I think, more often, these storms that rapidly intensify sort of just before they make landfall. And that obviously is is not a good thing because it can create some of what we saw yesterday, big storm surges and uh, obviously wind damage and um, can really just cause huge amounts of damage as it pushes on to land as these uh, hurricanes make landfall. And what has that damage started to look like? What do we know about the destruction so far? We know 
it's not good, um, but it's still sort of a moving target. I mean, what we know as we speak this morning is that there's more than two and a half million customers in Florida without power. Those numbers are surely likely to rise as the storm continues on up the East Coast. We know that there has been massive destruction from flooding um, and wind there in the Fort Myers, Cape Coral region where the storm made landfall. And one thing I'm really watching in the, in the hours and, and days ahead is what happens with inland flooding. Just this morning, I have been seeing alert after alert of, of flash flood warnings. And Brady, talking about flooding and storm surges, many of our colleagues on the ground in Florida have been hearing that from the people that they've been talking to. Uh, One of our colleagues in particular, Brittany Shamus, she is in Key West, which is further south from where the brunt of the storm was. But she talked to people who have been experiencing this exact kind of flooding, one person in particular named Dylan Estevez. So Dylan and his roommate thought that they were out of harm's way, but then they started to see flooding. This is nuts. He comes running to me, oh, it's flooding. I was like, what do you mean it's flooding? I thought he was messing with me, I thought he was doing something on the ground. I was like, oh, wow, there's really water in here. Because it hadn't rained, there was no rain, it was just storm surge. The water is gushing, dude. Literally, 45, 50 minutes, it went from no water in the house to, all right, we gotta get out of here. We were very unprepared on (laughs) Just, you know, everybody. I don't think anyone expected it, you know. It just happened so quick that it came over within the last few hours, and then at that time, it's too late. Yeah. I got Twitter fools already asking me, like, why didn't you get out? Oh, yeah. I live in the Panhandle. I was like, yeah, you can go anywhere. I live on a two-by-four island, and the only way, there's one way in, one way out. Right. Everyone decides to leave, or they make everyone leave. You're going to be stuck. You know what happens in two hours when I leave? I'm still in the Keys. So, Brady, in terms of what Dylan is describing, where he didn't even see that much rain, that it was literally just storm surge and flooding that happened all of a sudden, how common is that? And like, and why is that? Why are we seeing um, storm surges that are so aggressive, even in places where they feel like it's, it, the downpour is not that significant? It's always true that with a hurricane, the wind is bad, but the water is what is truly frightening and what tends to cause fatalities and the most amount of damage. And so with this storm and others like it, waters can rise really fast as wind pushes water onto the shore into low-lying neighborhoods, especially if it hits at a high tide. And what, you know, what we are increasingly having to deal with and will have to deal with in the future is that you know, there's always been hurricanes, but sea levels are also rising and rising at an accelerating rate. We know that now. We know that in parts of this coast of Florida, sea levels have risen almost a foot in some places uh, over the last century. That's only going to get worse. And so that may not seem much when you think about it, but when a storm is pushing huge volumes of water onto land, a few inches can be the difference between you know, your your yard getting wet or water, you know, coming into your living room and your bedrooms and taking over your house. And I think um, that's at play here, the sea level rise that's always already happened. I think it's only going to become more of a problem over time. I also want to talk about evacuations in this case. And we heard warnings from Governor Ron DeSantis in advance of the storm telling people in, in certain counties, if you're close to the coast, you need to leave. How much did people listen to that? Like, what kind of effect did that have? And how many people did we see actually pay attention to to these concerns in advance of the storm? 
Sure, it's a mixed bag, as it always is in these kind of situations. I mean, certainly millions upon millions of people were under evacuation orders and were pleaded with by authorities to to get out of the way of the storm. Uh, but we know that many people stayed. In some ways, it's a calculation, maybe that you'll be lucky or others want to be there to safeguard their homes or, or look after relatives. Some people are just defiant. Other people, frankly, don't have the means to leave. Um, mm-hmm. I often think in these disaster situations that it's the most vulnerable folks who are unable to evacuate or who who wind up facing the most danger. Elderly people who who live alone or in nursing facilities or you know, folks who don't have access to a car or no money, frankly, for the gas or the ability to flee to a hotel. And so there there are were certainly a large number of people who did not heed the orders for whatever reason. In some places where the storm turned away from, uh, I'm thinking like the Tampa, St. Petersburg, Tampa Bay area, that turned out to be okay. In other places, I'm sure it became a much more harrowing situation for some people. And we have seen in the last day or two, you know, multiple water rescues and that kind of thing, which is difficult during a storm like this because even emergency personnel can't get to all the places they need to be. While the past day has, I'm sure, been awful for many people in Florida, the story is is really just beginning because after a storm moves on, we have to go back and see how widespread the damage is. And there are going to be a lot of questions, inevitably, of whether we can help the people who are going to most be in need. And how well do we help people rebuild? Does that aid flow to the people who are most vulnerable? And then there are hard questions about where to rebuild and and should we change building codes or where should we not build? I had someone tell me yesterday, you know, we haven't often confronted those questions in Florida, but storms like this one uh, start to raise some of those hard questions And it also exposes the vulnerabilities and the sort of the inequities and how different people are able to weather a disaster like this. You know, if you miss a week of work, um, that can be catastrophic. Certainly if you have damage to your home that you're not able to repair, that can be catastrophic. So I think that's something to really pay attention to in the wake of a storm like this. After the break, we'll hear how demographic changes in Florida have made the state especially vulnerable to storms like this. We'll be right back. Brady, it seems like there is this open question of how much Florida and many other states in the country that are vulnerable to hurricanes, how much they're really grappling with those hard questions around how you prepare for more storms like this in the future. Um, we heard from Governor DeSantis this morning, who held a press briefing, talking about the the devastation. The amount of water that's been rising and will likely continue to rise today, even as the storm is passing, uh, is basically a 500-year flood event. But he also described this as a one in 500 year flood event, which at this point seems like not really true, that we can actually expect more of these kinds of storms and more of this extent of flooding in Florida going forward. Historically, what we're seeing in the last day or so might have been a one in 500 year flood in a lot of places. As sea levels rise, as we see these more intense storms, as we get more and more torrential rainfalls, which is an impact we're seeing from the warming climate, 
these kind of flooding events are going to be much more common. Uh, what was once a one in 500 year flood is probably going to be a 100 year flood or a 25 year flood. And so I, I think uh, we do ourselves a disservice when we look at what history tells us and not what we can expect going forward. Because we are sort of in a new era when these kind of events are going to become more common. And um, the real question is, what do you do with that knowledge? We're pretty certain, scientists are pretty certain about that now. Mm -hmm. And so what do you take from that? And how do you prepare before the storm comes, not just after it hits? And the factor here that makes all of that even more complicated is the fact that this part of Florida that got hit by the hurricane, um, you've seen pretty rapid population growth over the past uh, few years. So can you talk a little bit about how many people have been relocating there and, and whether there is this um, kind of understanding that as people are flowing more toward western Florida, that that is actually putting them at risk? Sure. This is a really fascinating thing um, that some fellow colleagues and I looked at this week. We looked at the last 50 years, basically, from 1970 to 2020, and the area where the hurricane made landfall, Cape Coral, Fort Myers area, has grown 623% during that time period. It now has more than like 760,000 people. Other areas along the West Coast there have also seen triple digit, well into the triple digits of growth. So you have millions literally millions of more people than than you once had in this part of Florida. And, and why are so many people moving there? I think it's just a, a thing some people might be wondering. Sure. Well, you can understand it, right? I mean, people want to escape, as they always have, cold northern winters. Uh, some people want a state with no state income tax. Lots of folks love the beach. I mean, it's beautiful. I, I lived there for years. It's a lovely place. But with that comes risk. And as one researcher told us, you know, if, if Hurricane Ian had hit here in 1950, well, not as big a deal. There was less mm. here and less in the way. But our built environment is really expanding and growing. And we have built often in places that are really vulnerable, such as wetlands that got filled in and housing put on top. And so it's sort of a double whammy in a way. People are closer to harm's way when a storm like this comes. And things like wetlands that could previously mitigate the impact of floodwaters are now no longer there. So, you know, it's what that researcher called an expanding bullseye effect, that as we flood into these vulnerable places around the United States, we are just creating a larger bullseye for these weather-related disasters. Do you think that Florida was prepared for this hurricane? And what do you think it would take to make the state better prepared for other hurricanes of similar magnitude that we can expect in the future? It depends on how you define prepared. Some individuals were prepared, others weren't. I think cities have done some preparation, others haven't. It's really a story uh, that's not so black and white. We did a lot of reporting this week on the Tampa Bay area and how it has consistently been named one of the most vulnerable areas in the country if it were to get a direct hit from a hurricane, which it hasn't had in 100 years. And the leaders in Tampa are not naive about this. They've done planning and they've done, you know, they even did a scenario of what would happen if a hurricane, a Category 5 hurricane struck this area. So, and yet the building goes on and the high rises go up and there's any number of homes that are on, on slabs that could be washed away right by the water. So, Having knowledge about what you might face and being able to uh, do all the things that it would take to safeguard people in the area, 
sometimes are two different things. Do you think that this one hurricane will be enough to change the conversation going forward or make people rethink the extent of development and, and population growth in, on the west coast of Florida? My gut says no, because we, for all the reasons I just mentioned, people want to live in these places. But again, a lot of people who have moved um, in recent years have never experienced a hurricane. They have never experienced a, a really bad flood. Maybe that begins to make people rethink how and and where we live in, in these beautiful but vulnerable places. But, uh, you know, decisions have to be made on a, on a broader scale of where we're going to allow people to build and not build. And oftentimes, at least historically, it's really economics that drive those decisions and where people want to live and where there is money to be made. And I don't know, that's a pretty powerful force. And until it just becomes abundantly clear that some of these places are not good places to live over the long term, I think those are going to be hard decisions to make. Brady, thank you so much for explaining this. Thank you for having me. Brady Dennis is a climate reporter for The Post. Brittany Shamus, Molly Hennessy-Fisk, and Reese Tebow contributed reporting. And that's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Alana Gordon and Eliza Dennis. It was mixed by Renny Svernovsky and edited by Maggie Penman. If you value the reporting you hear on this podcast, please share it with someone you know. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.